So have you ever been afraid of the dark? As a child, I remember being a few times afraid of the dark, maybe more than a few times. But how about afraid of the light? Have you ever been afraid of light? Afraid of the light. Today, we're going to see some adults who were afraid of the light of God's truth. The light of truth was shining on their activities, and they got angry. They were angry, and they were afraid of God's truth. As we have this Christmas time together, we've had with our families, and various things been happening in our personal lives, it's uh, just great to celebrate that God sent the light of truth, Jesus Christ, to the world for us. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Last time we studied about Christ's triumphal entry in the first part of Mark chapter 11, as Jesus came into Jerusalem as God's king. And it's an event we remember each year on Palm Sunday, when he came riding into Jerusalem on a colt, with people spreading their coats and palm trees in front of him. People worshipped him when he entered Jerusalem, and the question comes to mind, how did, how did these people in Jerusalem receive their king when he came in? And also, how do we receive him as king? As we celebrate Christmas, do we receive him as king of our life? And at the conclusion of that first day of Jesus in Jerusalem, on that Sunday in verse 11, Jesus looks around Jerusalem, and then he leaves with the twelve, and he stays that night two miles away in the city of Bethany. And the events that follow that next day that we will study today here are not a reaction, but a well-thought-out plan to perform God's will. So our story here starts on verse 12 on Monday morning. And Luke 19.41 adds a detail that is really interesting that exposes God's thoughts about the city of Jerusalem on that Monday morning as he approached. And when he came near the city, it says, he beheld the city and wept over it. And as we open these verses in front of us, Alistair Begg has said of it, and I want to quote from him, These verses have proved to be a breeding ground for irrelevant questions and implausible answers, and the matter of this cursing of the fig tree has been a common story where people have pooled their ignorance. End quote. So with that word of encouragement, let's jump into these verses. I'm going to title this section today, Have Faith in God. And with that, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture, for our Savior as he came to Jerusalem, that he wept over it, that he taught, that he cared for the people, and he gave his life for us there in that town. And thank you for the scripture and ask that you would come and meet with us, bring your Holy Spirit in to uh, convict us of sin and, and renew us afresh with the fruits of the Spirit that we would grow in our love for you. In Christ's name, amen. So let's start here in verses, Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. And I'm going to call this the necessity of fruitfulness. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. 
And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. So we join with the God of the universe in the fulfillment of the many prophecies of scriptures as he has come into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, and now this city, central city of religious life, he's come to it looking for true worship and for his heavenly father to be honored and adored. And what does he find? He finds a fig tree with no fruit on it, and then shortly he's going to discover God's temple is full of activity and it has no fruit either. So in these first three verses, we see Jesus on his way to the temple, looking for fruit on a fig tree to satisfy his hunger, and he finds nothing but tree branches and leaves. And so he curses the tree, and the next day it's withered. Is Jesus applying his God powers arbitrarily when he doesn't get what he wants? Is it legitimate for us to assume that Jesus is callous towards this tree of his creation? Not at all, because this doesn't fit God's character. It is interesting that this is a miracle of destruction, and it's the only one, only miracle of destruction in all of the Gospels. Can we conclude that Jesus is acting out of self-interest when he's hungry and this fruitless tree is destroyed? No, we can't. There must be something deeper happening with this fig tree than a superficial story that we see at first glance. Especially since verse 13 ends with the statement that it was not the time of figs. There must be a lesson that Jesus is teaching instead of demonstrating his personal disappointment in the lack of food. It's also interesting that Jesus does not interpret this event for his disciples or for us. And since there is no explanation offered, it appears that God's intention is to use this as an object lesson for the temple. In this passage, with no explanation, but instead, Jesus offers instruction about prayer and faith. So fig trees have a special allegory in the Old Testament. They represent what God saw in the Israelites at various times. So look at well, I'll read just one verse. In Hosea 9.10, God, the prophet is saying of Israel, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fig on a fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. That is very, uh, a very delightful description of how God saw Israel. But then, Hosea goes on to say, But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. When we look at the scriptures, both the grapevine and the fig tree are used as metaphors of our status before God. There was a time when God found Israel pleasing to them, and God took delight in their worship, and yet they still turned away from God. And the fig tree, I I was asking some people, and, and our friend Piam has been in the Middle East, has actually eaten fresh fruits from a fig tree. And he says, they're, it's beautiful tree, it's beautiful fruit, it's very delectable. And then Kenneth, I talked to Kenneth, he said he has too. Over in Turkey, he's eaten fresh figs from a fresh tree. And they say it is just as delightful as it's portrayed. Just a delicious fruit on a delicious, very beautiful looking tree. 
So Hosea used the fig tree in a positive way to describe what God found pleasing in Israel. But the prophet Micah used it as a negative example in Micah 7.1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. There is no fresh ripe fig that my soul desires. And Micah was saying that of God. God desired that fresh ripe fig. The godliest perish from the earth. There is no one upright among them. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. So what Jesus is doing in this action of the fig tree was an action parable of a prophet demonstrating destruction that sets the stage for what's coming next in the cleansing of the temple and in the prophecy that's coming up in Mark chapter 13. This tree was used as an object lesson and the lesson was that of hypocrisy. And you remember how Jesus strongly condemned the hypocrisy of the religious leaders in that day for caring so much more about the external than the internal. And like in Matthew 23:27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were all vague, they were all vogue on the outside and vague on the inside. And outwardly this fig tree looked great. It was adorned with God's creation, but within it had nothing. It was hollow. It was barren. And God goes on in First Peter three three, there's a beauty that is described that is very precious to God. Do not let your adorning be external. And he goes on in verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is in God's sight very precious. And this fig tree was not bearing fruit for God and neither was the temple. God wants a return on his investment. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He has granted salvation. He wants a return on his investment. Second Peter 1.8 For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in knowing God. God has a reason to expect fruit from his children. First Peter, or sorry, Second Peter 1.3 tells us his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these we may be partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then he goes on to give the list of spiritual gifts of of diligence and faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Jesus looked at this fig tree and was disappointed. Jesus is going to go into the temple, looking at the activity of the temple, and he's going to be disappointed. Jesus looks at our lives, and what does he see? Is he pleased or disappointed? We should also point out, even though it tells us 
that the, it is not the time of figs at this point, that fruit trees have a limited time offer. Jesus told us in John 7, 6, that our time is always ready. Our time is always ready. And in Galatians 6, 10, as we have opportunity, the opportunity is always ripe for us. Let us do good to all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. So what were the first words Jesus spoke in the book of Mark in chapter 1? What are the very first things? The first words are, the time is fulfilled, Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is here to repent and believe and is coming to Jerusalem now. So let's turn to the next verses here in verses 15 through 24. And I'm going to call these the necessity of faith. Let's pick up here in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, it, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because of all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city, and in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, recalling to remembrance, said unto them, unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe when ye receive them, and ye shall have them. We should also note in John chapter 2 verse 13, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, after he turned the water into wine, the first miracle, the second thing he did, was he cleansed the temple. He went to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple there. And these two cleansing events are like the bookends of Jesus' ministry. So let's look at where this money transaction happened, was first initiated in Exodus chapter 30, verse 15. The Jewish law required that every man, 20 years old and older, should pay an atonement offering to the service of the temple in the amount of a half of a shekel. That was in the law. Everybody come to the temple, 20 years older, half a shekel. But Judea was under Roman rule with the Roman coin that was being used. So to obey the law, they had to exchange their Roman money for a half of a shekel, plus exchange fees. And then there was the matter of animal sacrifices. At a minimum, people were to offer two pigeons, one for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering. And if you lived a long ways from the temple, you're coming to Jerusalem, you would have to walk and carry two birds along with your suitcase and everything else you had. So it might be easier just to purchase the two pigeons when we get to Jerusalem, which set up the situation that the religious leaders were using to their, to their advantage to rob the people as they were seeking gold instead of God. 
And at the temple in the time of Christ, the leaders had turned God's requirement and the law of this half a shekel into a major money-making enterprise. And the temple was big and beautiful on the outside, but on the inside it was full of extortion and robbery. So when Jesus entered the temple, what action did he take? What does it tell us here? He drove out those who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. Third, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And fourth, he taught the people saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And where, where in the whole temple complex does this happen? Is he in the, the holy place, the holiest place? Where is he? He doesn't take place inside the building, but outside of the building, in the courtyard of the Gentiles is where he's at. Is where this was happening. And this courtyard of the Gentiles was called to be a blessing to all nations. And then he quotes from the verses Isaiah 56, verse 7. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house for, of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. And we see this. The scripture has an example in Acts 8.27. When a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure, had come up to Jerusalem for to worship. And we see many of the Gentiles coming to worship at Jerusalem. People from all nations were invited to worship at the temple. But all Gentiles were required to stay in the outer court of the Gentiles. The leadership had an expectancy that when the Messiah would come, that he would cleanse the temple from the Gentiles. But Jesus went to the court of the Gentiles to cleanse it for the Gentiles. And this courtyard was for all people, for all people to pray and worship God and not for money-making enterprises. So Jesus comes to the temple that he should be the, that should be the center of religious life, looking for prayerfulness, looking for fruitfulness, and discovers neither. And really, we ought to pause and, and ask ourselves, what happens when we come to church? Do we create a pressure on each other to be more concerned on the outward appearance than our worship? May we just encourage each other to grow in our faithfulness and worship and prayer. And there's a general consensus among the commentators as, as we look at the scripture and apply how, what happened afterwards, that the fig tree was representative of Israel, the leaves were the outward show at the temple. The fruit which grows was love for God. The cursing is divine judgment. And the withering of the tree signifies the finality of judgment. There is no second chance. And in verse 18, the scribes and chief priests respond to this activity by looking for a way to destroy Jesus because he shined the light of truth on their sinful activities. And so Monday comes to an end after these eight verses. Verse 20 starts Tuesday, the next day, 
And Tuesday will continue through the end of chapter 13. And it starts with the disciples noticing the fig tree shriveled up and its only remaining value is to be cast into the fire because it will never bring forth fruit again. And the only possible value for this tree was for firewood now. And when what Jesus did that day, after the triumphal entry, it was dramatic. It was unmistakable. It is a warning. And it shocked the disciples. And in, it was an act of mercy that Jesus only cursed this tree. Because there's a day coming when the king of the universe will say to many people, you are cursed, depart from me, and be cast into eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus was looking for fruit on this tree and faith in the temple and found neither. When Jesus comes and looks into our lives, what does he find? Faithfulness? Does he find fruitfulness? And then look at the transition that happens here. Between verse 21 and then 22 and 23. This is, this is a huge chasm of a transition. How do we move from a destroyed fig tree to casting a mountain into an ocean? We may be impressed that a fig tree would wither at the command of Jesus. But he's reminding us that by comparison... This is nothing when compared to the power of God that lives within us. This is an example on how we might draw on the power of God when we act in believing faith. God's house is to be a house of prayer. And Jesus responds with, Have faith in God. When you pray, believe that you shall receive. What is the answer to this transition here? Have faith in God. When Jesus came into the temple, there was no faith in God. There was plenty of religious activity, lots of people at the temple with a good show, but faith was missing on the inside. Have faith in God. The difference lies underneath the tree and its roots. Our faith must have God as its object. We should not have faith in ourselves, faith in our faith, have faith in God. So how does this fig tree and this temple event turn into faith for us? Fig tree, temple event, and God, Jesus then just jumps into the discussion about faith. How does that all tie together? We're going to read several verses in Romans chapter 11. Picking up at verse 17. Paul writes to us about Israel and us. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But if you stand fast through faith, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 
The Jews who were the original branches were broken off, and we who, have been, who are Gentiles have been grafted among them. Do not boast. If we find ourselves boasting, we need to consider this. We, are branch, we as branches do not support the tree roots, but the roots support the branches. As we understand this, we can see that branches were broken off so that we could be grafted into the tree. And they were broken off because of unbelief. And we remain attached because of faith. Here is the exhortation. Do not be arrogant. Instead, be afraid for ourselves. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not us. God brought judgment on the unbelief of Israel, the people that had been called for himself in the temple at Jerusalem. And Paul writes that we should never think that we are beyond the reach of God's judgment. Now, what is the key word in verse 23? The next phrase after this. And it's whosoever. Everyone. Every one of us qualify for what comes next. Mark, pick it up there at Mark 11, verse 23. I, verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatever he says. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things ye desire, when ye pray, believe ye shall receive them, and ye shall have them. Whoever says to this mountain, what mountain was the object lesson in front of them? They were standing right there in front of the Mount of Olives. What sea was the object lesson? It was the Dead Sea, down, right down the road. This is a call not to be dependent upon our understanding of our situations, but this is a call for us to ask for anything and everything in prayer. This is an intentional exaggeration to overstate God's willingness to hear our prayers and to secure the attention of the, these disciples so that they will not hold back in prayer. Jesus is calling us to have an audacious faith, a bold faith, that we should ask God for the daring, and we should ask because we believe in a God who is too wise to make mistakes. When Jesus was walking on water, and he asked Peter to join him, come join me. Peter comes out, he's walking on water, starts to fall because he sees the wind and the waves and the situation. This is too big of a situation. Jesus reaches out and catches him. What did he say? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What are we instructed? How are we instructed to pray in James 1.5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives generously to all without reproach. Without reproach. And it will be given. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. When we look at the Bible, what stories come to mind to you of people who did the equivalent of moving a mountain? There are many. The equivalent of moving the mountain. I'll give you a few that, come to, that came to my mind. Faith is the hammer that Noah used to build the ark. Faith is the magnet that pulled Moses away from the pleasures of Egypt. 
Faith is the force that collapsed the walls at Jericho. Faith is the weapon that killed Goliath. Faith is the fire that came down from heaven at Mount Carmel. Faith is the shield that protected Job through his trials. Faith is the muzzle that closed the mouth of the lions for Daniel. Faith walked through the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faith is the humility that gladly received a few crumbs from God's table when Jesus healed a Gentile woman's daughter. Faith was the exclusive door into the presence of God for that dying thief next to Jesus. And faith is the ladder that brings us nearer to God. Have faith in God. And Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 4.18, Let me tell you about the faith of Abraham, who against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall your offspring be. And being not weak in faith, he considered his body was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's wounds. God did not promise Abraham that he was going to have a boy. God promised him that he was going to have a vast family of many nations. And as they were approaching a hundred years old, with no child sitting around the dinner table with them, what do they talk about at dinner? It's going to be impossible for God to keep this promise. Did they discuss about, there is no way God can do this? And not at all. It says, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore is imputed to him for righteousness. God has the power to do what is promised. That is faith. Believe in God's promises. And when we read the book of Acts. It's incredible to see the faith and power. That God released through those apostles. When Peter stood there before a layman. What did he do? I don't know if God can heal this guy or not. What, what, what can I do for a crippled man? What does it tell us he did? In Acts 3, 6, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then he was called on the carpet for doing that. And what did he say? Acts three sixteen. In Jesus' name, by faith in his name, this man has been made strong, whom you see. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The point of his teaching is given to us here in the last four words of verse 22. Have faith in God. Our hope of the hope of our faith isn't in ourselves in today's preacher. It is have faith in God. Now this whole thought of trees and vines and fruitfulness and faith, this whole, whole topic is captured for us in John chapter 15. I'd like to read just a few verses out of John 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may 
bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So as Jesus and his disciples are standing there outside of Jerusalem with the Mount of Olives in front of them, should they show off God's power by playing catch with a few mountains? So you go up and command a few mountains and go play catch with them. James chapter 4, 2 and 3 instructs us here. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it upon your passions. Instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and do this or, not, or that. And when Jesus says, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe you will receive them, and you shall have them. What, what jumps out in this passage as qualifiers to this? Maybe a few things came to mind as I look at this. When Jesus talked to this fig tree and it withered, that was not a self-serving activity. It was in humility instructing the people. Our prayer life comes out of humility that we don't always know what to ask for. And as Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, it was out of great love. And he approached prayer in love for the people that he was serving. So how did this all work out in Jesus' life of prayer? And it's really... I find it interesting in Mark 14.36, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he pray? He said, all things are possible for you, take away this cup from me. Jesus prayed, all things are possible for you, God, take away this cup. Everything's possible. What did he just tell us here in verse uh, 24 of chapter 11. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you shall receive it, and it shall be yours. Jesus was absolutely confident in God's power when he prayed in the garden. All things are possible. But look at verse 2, part 2 of that verse. What does it say next? Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was completely submissive to God's will. Total confidence in God's power, coupled with complete submissiveness to God's will. Boldness together that God is able to do the impossible. And when we approach God in the right, for the right things, in the right way, trusting him in faith, we can be confident that the outcome of prayer is in God's will. Let's move on now to verses 25 and 26. And these are the necessity of forgiveness. And when you stand praying, forgive. For 
If ye ought have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. And while we're approaching God in prayer, we need to keep forgiveness in mind. When a trespass comes to mind, instead of complaining to God, we should immediately forgive and seek reconciliation. Unless we forgive each other, it's apparent that we have no understanding of the grace that's been forgiven us when God has forgiven us from our sins. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said to them to ask God to forgive us just like we forgive each other. It doesn't mean to play the part of the victim, to look at all the forgiveness I've given to these people. God, you owe me because I forgave those people. Not at all. Does God owe us forgiveness? No. When we look at the price that was paid for our salvation by our Savior, it is unthinkable that we should think anyone owes us anything. What Jesus did to this fig tree is all about bearing fruit. And we should check our lives for fruitfulness. What Jesus did in the temple was all about removing covetousness. So we should check our lives for covetousness and pursuit of God. What Jesus said about being bold in prayer towards God is about faith. And we should check our lives for faithfulness in prayer. And what Jesus said about forgiveness is a fundamental foundation for prayer. And we should inspect our life for forgiveness and faithfulness to our Lord and forgiveness towards each other. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, grant us that we would have faith in God. That we would not look at the things of this world, but that we would look to you and ask you to use us for your honor and glory. Grant us that we would be faithful, that we'd be fruitful, and that we would be forgiving towards each other. In Christ's name, amen.